Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For much too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality in leadership and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We absolutely must change this, and I hope that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible in a way that works for you and for your families, so you can make the decisions that make our world and our organizations better places. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about giving parents the support and space to progress to senior leadership in a way that works for them and their families. We have lots of free events and also lots of resources on leadersplus.org where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave or securing a promotion as a working parent or thriving or surviving depending how you look at it as a dual career couple. We also have an award-winning global fellowship program for working parents who have big dreams for their careers but don't want to sacrifice everything for it. You will join a tight-knit supportive group of people. You'll get space to think about what you want for your life, for your family, for your career, a senior leader mentor and a lot of targeted support in order to get you where you would like to be. And you can find all that on leadersplus.org forward slash fellowship for the details. The next application deadline is on 20th March 2024 and you can download the brochure on leadersplus.org. In this week's episode, I'm talking to Natasha Porter about being a CEO, setting up your own organization and having a baby just after launch, what it's like to work with young children in such a senior role and why she thinks that being a CEO is actually one of the best roles to combine a big career with young children in. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Natasha, to the podcast. It's great to have you with me today. Let's start with you introducing yourself, who you are, what you do for work and who's in your family. Hi, I'm Natasha Porter. I am the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of a charity called Unlocked Graduates. In my family, in my house, I've got my husband, Cory, and then I've got two children, my son, Zephyr, who is six, and I've got a daughter called Zoe, who is three. Wonderful. And you just shared earlier that you also have an au pair, which I'm immensely jealous of. And <laughs> <laughs> what, we what have a like brilliant live-in au pair. And also my parents live quite nearby, but travel a lot. So yeah, quite a lot of support. And I can bang on quite a lot about au pairs and why I think government policy needs to change, especially post-Brexit with mm. the new immigration rules to make au pairs easier to access but it's been a real game changer for us. Wow. I can imagine. It's just on a side note, at the moment, you're only able to access au pairs from, I think, places like Australia and New Zealand. Is that right? Exactly. So I think there's five countries where you can just get a youth visa, youth working visa for two years. And those, I think, is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US and Japan. And that meant actually when we were finding our au pair last year, there were 
I think there were four families who were interviewing for her. So the ball was very much in her court. And what anecdotally I hear is people then hiring, perhaps not through official routes. And the concern then is, you know, you're extremely vulnerable coming to a foreign country, especially as a young woman. This feels a bit like a woman's rights issue as well as a childcare issue, but without the proper support. So we should definitely bring back au pair visas, help solve some of the childcare issues. Seems like a really straightforward policy. Yeah, yeah. So if, that's yeah. my first big policy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Childcare reform, bring back au pair visas for people from EU countries. Mm. That sounds great. It's weird. I feel like I there is an au pair rating in the ether for me somewhere because, or maybe not because of the competition, but I feel like in the last few weeks, literally everyone tells me just get an au pair if that's a possibility, which is, I know is a very privileged situation to be in, to have a small spare room to be able to potentially sacrifice um yeah, and, and for us, it's been actually, you know, at the moment, I said the members of the family at the beginning, she is part of our family. She was up with us with my in-laws over Christmas up in Yorkshire. She's, it's very much like having a cousin or something for the children, slightly older, uh, slightly mm. younger than me and my husband. But it's really nice actually to have someone kind of join the family in that way. Definitely. I have some of my fondest memories of being with an au pair as a child, which who did a lot more stuff that you know that was really fun and who had the energy to play which obviously my parents as lovely as they are perhaps didn't but aside from discovering that the au pair is a really worthwhile thing to do for you personally I'm interested was there anything else that you changed your mind on since you've had children around combining a big CEO career with some still quite young children so I mean this is I think a huge question and for me has been absolutely seminal to not just since I've had children but before as well hugely tied up in issues around gender for me as well being a woman and believing that there are things you know believing in my early 30s I think that I had a really fulfilling career I'd done some really exciting things I'd helped start a school I was a senior leader for a number of years And I decided I'm quite a kind of planner. I decided that I needed in my early 30s, I like had really good career life, but I was single. I didn't see my friends very much. I felt like I really wanted to put energy into that. And it definitely felt like it had to be a choice that, you know, once I'd found a partner, once I wanted to have children, I very much thought that that meant scaling your career down. And I quite deliberately did that. So I moved out of a senior leadership role in a school. I moved into a think tank, actually I moved into policy. And part of that was about trying to broaden my impact and having some space to reflect. But actually, part of that was also explicitly thinking about having the kind of job that you can start a family in. And I just think that's such a strong message that I got as a young woman was that there are jobs that you can start families in and therefore there are also jobs you can't. And for me, that was about responsibility and seniority, not necessarily fitting, like a big job didn't fit with having a family was what I thought. So I ended up actually almost starting Unlocked by accident. I was writing a business plan for it. I needed someone to start it. I got more and more excited about it. I couldn't find anyone else who I thought would be quite right. So I ended up thinking, well, I'll just do it. I'll start it. But I then got pregnant. (laughs) And I really thought... 
actually, I did a lot of work to try and work out how I could make those two things fit. And I couldn't, because I'd read this book, Lean In, which I know lots of people, you know, I think there's a privilege to be able to make the decisions that they talk about in Lean In. But I, after reading that book, I thought, right, I'm going to lean into this job. I'm going to, you know, do the work, although I don't know what this looks like and it feels scary. The big shift for me, actually, it was quite, you know, sometimes these things happen over time. For me, it was an absolute like light bulb moment. So I had to tell my board and we were in startup. We were just pre-startup. We were trying to do funding rounds. It was like, I just raised a business plan. It was a terrible time to get pregnant from my perspective. But I wrote a script that I was going to use with my board and I practiced it with my husband and and I really thought about it. And I was going to say, look, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. I've got a really good plan in place. It's going to be okay. So I called up. I thought I'll call up the one mother on my board, this woman, Dame Sally Coates. And I prepped rages and I set the time in and I practiced and I called her up and I went through my script. And I said, you know, it's really big news. This is going to be quite a shock for you, but I've got a plan. I'm going to make it work. And finally, at the end, I said, so the big news, Sally, is I'm pregnant. And there was just this pause, went silent. I thought, oh, shit, this is really like going to... And she just said, she said, for God's sake, Natasha, why are you being so dramatic? Like, people get pregnant all the time. I've had four children. You know, it's like, she was like, this isn't that big a deal. Like, why are you making this such a big deal? This is, you've got this whole like script and you got... And then she said, I thought you were dying. I thought you had cancer or something. You're just pregnant. Like, it was the first time anyone in my whole life, I mean, maybe it was also one of the first times I kind of verbalized it, but it's the first time someone had just said that it didn't have to be that big a deal for my professional life. And I think... Like in one way, of course, it's a big deal. It changes your whole life. But in another way, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, I was just pregnant and it was just going to work. And I think for me, that was like a complete life-changing moment where suddenly it was like, oh, it doesn't have to be that big a deal. Mm. <laughs> like just life continues. That's massive. And we should say, Dame Sally Coates, she's a heavy hitter in your field, yeah. isn't she? She is, it is not your neighbour mentioning casually that it's going to be okay. It is one of the most senior, most respective people in those in that field. So, well, well done her for saying that. But physically, I mean, did you question at any point whether you were doing the right thing, still trying to set up and then leading unlocked? From that point, I didn't actually really. It completely shifted my mind. It made me feel empowered. I think, and Sally like has that effect anyway. I just think she's, and I think a lot of what I've learned is about women uplifting women through this. I mean, I say that one of the other, you know, when people ask me about how you do this, this, I think maybe the single most feminist act I accidentally took was marrying a feminist and having a husband who was so supportive. And when I told him, he was like, yeah, right on. You know, that's completely what I believe. Of course you can. I'm going to tell you this for ages. But it, as you say, like hearing it from Sally was what made me think, yeah. So I, at that point, started like scouring the internet for other CEOs who had a baby during startup and like what had worked, what were the tricks. And I started planning. I'm a real planner. So I started like building my Excel spreadsheets. I started planning my training for the board, for the senior team to get everyone prepared for this. Um, it really took me from 
like I took back my power on it and it gave me the power to make the decisions I needed to make to make this work. And actually what I discovered, which has just become more and more true, is this is probably the best job in lots of ways to be a new mother in and to be the mother of a young family because I was starting an organization from scratch. I could design the culture around being a supportive organization for young parents. I could, you know, parents of young families, like I could set up a culture which was completely nurturing and supportive of my needs as a pregnant woman who was about to have a baby during startup. And I could hire a senior team who completely bought into that vision. I could make sure my board completely supported me through that. So actually what I began to realize was this is the dream job to have a young family in, in many ways, because like I didn't have to call up a boss and get their permission or like fit into some weird culture. I just get to make the culture that works for me. Mm. So what were some of the decisions that you have taken that you think have the biggest impact to how you're living your life now as a CEO with young children? So, and it's probably worth saying my dad was a CEO while I was growing up and was also CEO of a fast growing organization, like a hugely expanding organization. So, and he traveled a lot. He was quite absent and I didn't want to do it that way. I mean, I also didn't have the option to do it that way because I was the woman and therefore carrying the baby. So I think that's probably influenced hugely a need for me to be very present at home and think very carefully about that. So some of the things that have been most helpful, I read a blog early on about a woman who'd written down every single task she did and then allocated who would do that task through her maternity leave and when things would be escalated, like what were her red lines in each area to escalate to her. And that meant really early on, I got out of the detail and moved into a strategic role and one of oversight, which frankly, as a new CEO, I think is quite a big step to make. It forced me to make that step. And I came back. So I gave birth to Zephyr. Um, we launched the organization in December. I gave birth in March. And when I came back at the end of June, the organization looked and felt very different. And I never took that work back. So I think the first thing it did was really push me to decide, like, what is mine and what is someone else's? And actually, that makes your business much stronger because it means there's more points of escalation. People own their work, which makes them feel you know, more rewarded in their work. You end up with a high quality product. So that's one of the first things I did in work. The second thing is, I think there's often a thing where people just like hang around at the end of the day, even though they don't need to, because you don't want to be the first one to walk out the door. I have supper with the family every single night. And that's, unless I've got an evening event, that's pretty non-negotiable. So at 5.15, I leave the office. I tend to work from the office rather than home. I prefer to work in the office for all sorts of reasons. But there's no kind of culture of hanging around until seven at night or eight at night in the office just because everyone else is. And then if I need to, I'll log on when the kids are in bed. But So I guess getting rid of that kind of performative work hour culture where people do work hard, but actually it's pretty flexible how you do that work. And lots of the team are hybrid workers. Actually, my senior team, when we started, none of us had children. I think almost all of my senior team now have children and we all prioritize our families. Something that actually my dad used to say when he was a CEO was if people's families aren't happy, they'll leave because 
people's families are ultimately more important than their job. So I think there's something about like if home is happy and work works with it, then you're going to have a much better output of your workers. So that's always been at the heart. At home, some of the things are like I outsource whatever I can. We're not like super rich. You know, I'm not the CEO of like whatever makes you very rich. There are definitely CEOs out there who would come on this and be able to have like three nannies. That is not my life. But whatever we can afford to out, you know, we have a cleaner. And in fact, we then, you know, we live in a smaller house so that we can live closer to our offices, so that we have to commute less, so that we can have more time with the kids. We've decided to, our kids go to state schools. You know, we make compromises all the time financially so that we can then do things that mean we get to spend more time with our kids. And I think just being really deliberate about those decisions as well has been crucial. And just listening to you speak, it strikes me that you sound like someone who's got it quite together. Please don't see that as an offense, but you know, it sounds like it's going reasonably well. I'm sure not perfect, but it's going okay. A pressure point a lot of the senior people I talk to mention is this problem or this challenge around being always on and finding it very hard to let go and be there in the moment with the children when you know there's a lot more urgent stuff happening. Is that something you experience? You know, this pressure to log on late every night and just keep at it, work on the weekend. Is that a pressure you experience or not really? So, I mean, of course, because I think, you know, of course, when you're holding the can, you get responsible. And if, you know, if I know a new story is going to drop, if I know that something is on fire before Christmas, we had a couple of big things, you know, I'm calling up my husband and saying, I'm not going to be home for supper. I'm late tonight. I'm at the office dealing with it. And so there is that. I think generally having good mental health and well-being has to be a priority. I think it needs to be a priority generally for people, you know, like, oh, it has to be a priority for big jobs, like nonsense. It needs to be a priority for everyone. But there's definitely things that work really well for me. So we take a two-week family holiday every year where I switch my phone off. I switch my emails off my phone. I take all my work things off my phone. And I have like quite, I was going to say passive aggressive, probably quite an aggressive out of office where I say, you know, if you contact me on my holiday, do contact me if it's urgent, but be aware that if I don't think it's urgent, I'm going to be really cross with you. So like, (laughs) you know, please think like, if you want to contact me, like just check with someone, (laughs) Mm. ask someone else if it's actually urgent. Does it actually need me? There's, there's other very senior people in the organization. And if it actually needs me, does it actually need me within the next two weeks or can it wait? And if it does, then message me, but like, you know, be aware that it needs to be a really high bar because I think people can just get in the habit of messaging you. Mm, Absolutely. So that's something I do. The other thing I do is I have some things which really help me. I guess I call it kind of meditative, but like I'm sure purist meditation people might disagree with that term, but things that I find so engaging that they help me switch off. And those for me are things like reading trashy books, actually even like going through the news, there's some scrolling that works quite well for me with that. Jigsaw puzzles, I find incredibly good at just like focusing the mind so I can't think about anything else. TV is less good because I can think about stuff. For me, doing those kind of activities, 
create really good transitions. So part of the reason I like working in the office is I like the commute because on the commute, I do something that switches my head or I clear everything I'm nervous about from work. And then when I'm home, I try and put my phone elsewhere and just be there for supper and putting the kids to bed. And so I think that there are probably times... I find those times so unbearable when I struggle to switch off and so emotionally overwhelming that pretty quickly I try and do something about it because I'm particularly sensitive, I think, to emotional instability. Too often, organisational structures are not set up for working parents to thrive and progress their careers. And that's one of the root causes for the frequent feelings of guilt or feeling stuck in our careers that many of us experience. It is a root cause of why so many parents are plateauing in their careers, which leads to that terrible lack of women in senior leadership. We at Leaders Plus help to change this through our amazing community of alumni from our fellowship program, all our work with employers and of course our research. But right here, right now, in an often imperfect environment, I believe working parents do deserve support to develop and progress their careers in a way that works for them. Too often it is lonely in a leadership role with children. And I believe you deserve, we all deserve a supportive community of peers around us. In a hectic world, you deserve time and space to think what you want for your career and family life so you can make it happen. In a world where the privileged learn through old boys clubs about how to progress their careers, we all deserve to access that information about what really gets you to your dream role so that we can implement it in a way that works for us, that doesn't require us going for drinks with the boss every evening uh, on long evenings out because we are, want to be there for our children. Those are just some of the reasons why I set up the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. And I would love for you to consider to apply. Here are some of the voices from our previous fellows. The Leaders Plus Fellowship has ultimately it's changed my life. The fellowship really has changed my life. And I'm I'm in the process of returning to work now and I can't wait. I can't wait to make a change, to put myself first, to build up my team, to build up those around me and to really make a difference. Thank you. I completed the Leaders Plus programme in 2021 as I was returning from Matley with my second child. It was game changing for me. My advice to anyone considering whether they deserve such a support programme is don't hesitate. Do prioritise, do fight for the time to get clear on why and how you will work it. I offer my absolute support and encouragement to anybody that's considering the programme. Download the brochure from our website, leadersplus.org, and if it is of interest, apply by 20th March 2024. We should probably tell the listeners how significant your organisation is. You know, it's not a startup anymore, it's a really significant organization you're dealing with very senior government ministers you're making you're, you're dealing with i don't know what the chief of a prison is called but you're dealing with multiple of those and so on and so forth but what strikes me about your experience is that you seem to be able to let go 
comparatively easily just my interpretation from listening to you compared to perhaps other people I've spoken to and that's a really rare skill for a founder to be able to do and to say well actually yes I'm just strategically responsible and I'm gonna let you get on with the operational stuff but it's also the thing that is so important to have some sort of work-life balance what helped you how did you learn to become someone who can let go of the operational well, so you're stuff? saying that back to me I am thinking of examples where I'm not very I think <laughs> I think I try and well, so, and I guess another thing I do, these are all my tips, by the way, they might not work for other people, but I'm quite red line about having a date night every week with my husband. And date night always sounds really cringe. And But what we'll often do is if I'm stressed about things at work, we'll book supper like an hour and a half or two hours away, walk away, just like a pizza express or something. And then we'll walk home and I will just talk <laughs> about like there's this thing they talk about and in fact my organization is a prison organization there's this thing they talk about in danish prisons they call it danish children's prisons we saw it and they called it a kitchen sink moment and it's like when you're washing up alongside someone you also get the same i think when you're sat in a car driving but there's a level of talk where you just loosen up and just talk and it's almost, again, almost kind of meditative. I know I may have used this word, but it's almost kind of meditative. And I find that for me as well, when I'm just walking with someone for hours, I just kind of talk stuff through. So I try and build that into my life as well. And it means once a week, I just get to like offload. What I find is if I don't have these things in my life over a period of time, I begin to start carrying things. I think the other thing that I mean, firstly, just having a lot of, you know, having babies through startup, I think, helps you be, having the right senior team, I think, is non-negotiable. And it can be easy, it can feel easier to accept having the wrong team. Because, like, I can find difficult conversations quite hard to do. I'm, you know, been brought up as a woman in an environment where people-pleasing has always been part of you know, what good girls do and, you know, you don't have the hard conversations and it's easier to just be friendly and nice and smile at people and hope they somehow get the passive aggressive comments or that, you know, the weird hints you make are picked up. Like, I think the thing about having small children and doing startup, and frankly, I think our work is so important and urgent. We just don't have the space to tolerate stuff that isn't right. So I hire people who are better than me. They're cleverer than me. They're experts in their area. I give them trust and I work with my board to try and make sure that we've got good ways of kind of the right KPIs, the right measures to know if they're doing the right thing. But ultimately, I try and surround myself with incredible people. I see my job is like finding them and then persuading them to keep working with me. <laughs> um, and that means, you know, my COO, I wouldn't like, she's much better at the stuff that she does than I am. So, you know, I'll give her all of it and then I'll just, you know, I'll try and ask the right questions, try and support however I can, try and, you know, be a good check and balance, try and make sure everything's strategically aligned. But ultimately, I've hired the right person because I didn't have to get involved in that way. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm, it does. And I think I'm probably quite relentless with that. That's so interesting, actually. So essentially, in order to be, I'm just paraphrasing here, but in order to be someone with a really big career, um, 
a huge career. You've even got a, an OBE for for your work in the sector. So it's an example of, of um, you know the recognition for the the level of work that you have. In order to be that type of CEO, you also need to be completely not have an ego and let other people shine, but at the same time be tougher than anybody else because other people who are always next door to their CFO might be able to have a you know chat or well you'll always have chats I'm sure but as you say you can tolerate poor performance possibly easier but if you do genuinely want to delegate you need to have excellent performance which means you need to be tough to let people go or not I'm not saying that you did that but just that's what it is arising and I think actually you know my COO doesn't want to work for someone who's in her work you know mm. like my program director if I get too involved she's like could you please not get so involved because it's undermining me it's getting you know it's actually the I guess it's also because that's the way I work best it's hiring people who want to work in that environment and actually if someone does want a lot of hand-holding and someone who's really in the detail helping them make decisions and being the expert that kind of tells them what to do like I'm probably not going to be a great boss for them to work with so I think that's key. I guess the other thing is I had really serious challenges with mental health in my teens. And that probably gives me a particularly relentless, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm particularly stern with myself about what needs to be in place because I don't feel like I've got the capacity to let things slip very much. Yeah. So, but, you know, you speak about then what does the pressure look like? You know, actually for me, the switching off is less frustrating than just constantly having to make decisions. That's what I can find really exhausting and overwhelming. And actually on my 40th birthday last year, you know, everyone was saying, what do you want? What do you want? My husband was saying, what do you want? And the one thing I wanted was a day where I just didn't have to make a single decision for anybody else. I didn't have to order any food for like a supermarket delivery. I didn't have to book a club. I didn't have set up, you know, work out a play day. I didn't, I just, I didn't have to make any decisions about work. I could just have a day where I didn't have to make any decisions for anybody else. Because that's what I can find can be a lot is just the relentless decision-making. But again, like what a privilege where that's the biggest frustration you've got that you've got like too much autonomy mm. of your life sometimes I can really empathize with that um with my own role I think just you describing that I was like oh that's what I need to wish that <laughs> for my birthday it's interesting just what you described about what you're not doing and it just made me think about what is actually the role of a CEO what have you landed on what do you see your role as being and what are the things that you do prioritize which then means you can not prioritize the other stuff and be with your kids in the evening it's a good question and I think it changes. So there's times where things are not going to plan where I think you probably do need to be more into the detail, more directive, more. And I don't love being that CEO. I find, yeah, it's probably not where my best skill set lies. And often if I'm getting into other people's directorates and other people's areas, I haven't really thought it through in as much detail as they have. It's But there's definitely a need for that, I think, when things aren't going so well. For me, it's largely about holding the vision, holding the mission, and really keeping true to that, working with the board to really, you know, make sure, like, what does that look like? I've also had an incredible board, and 
amazing support from my boards and I'll call them up and talk stuff through you know I'll send them a text and say hey have you got 10 minutes and you know I'll give them a call and say oh this is the problem I'm facing you know these are the different options um so I think like setting that strategy having that vision and for me like values are really key as well really like what are our values how are we holding each other to them like how are we really getting there and then working out what the strategy is, what are the best KPIs that are going to make sure we're delivering that strategy and how are we holding people to account on those and supporting them with those. That's how I see a lot a lot of my role. And I do see, you know, that kind of leaders eat last thing, you know, is also just picking up some of the crap. <laughs> and that can be tricky when you've got a young family. And that's when, for me, having this incredibly supportive husband we've also chosen to live as close to my parents as we can afford to because like boomer generation with their you know fancy property we all know that challenge but we're on the tube line to both of their houses and again the decision to you know we've bought a house that thankfully has a room that we can have an au pair in yeah so those are the those are the kinds of things I think mm-hmm. interesting I wanted to ask you, from your recollection, what was the toughest moment that you can recall around combining your parent role with combining your CEO role? Other than that first phone call to Sally, where I thought she was going to fire me on the spot. Yeah. (laughs) So I hate being pregnant. And I always thought it would be this wonderful, glowy, lovely time where I'd just be, I mean, again, these kind of lies of womanhood that I believed, but personally, I have this thing called hyperemesis gravidarum. So I was in hospital. I was, you know, really unwell for lots of my pregnancy. Hated being pregnant. So it was really tough being very unwell and pregnant. And really, again, I mean, you know, you look back at these things and you think, oh, I learned so much about delegating and people stepping in. And, you know, I learned the organization could run without me for, you know, a bit of the time, which is actually sad, as well as, you know, you're like, oh, I've built a robust organization. You're like, but I don't feel needed. But yeah, there was, so I think two things really stand out for me. One was I gave birth right at the beginning of COVID and I had planned to have four months off with my daughter because I had much less than that off with my son. And I had a real phobia of postnatal depression. There's a lot of it in my family. As I said, I had mental health challenges when I was younger. So I was really worried that when I gave birth, I'd become very depressed. And so actually, for me, those early days of parenthood, I was kind of freaking out quite a bit. I really liked being at work. It really gave me a sense of doing something I was good at. It felt stabilizing. It was something that I find, you know, intellectually fascinating and I love my work, but I really wanted to take that time with my daughter and then COVID hit. And while I was in hospital, the hospital went into lockdown and my husband had gone to pick up our son to come and meet my daughter and they weren't allowed back onto the wards. And my team were calling me. I'd just come out of a C-section. So I just come out of surgery and my team were calling me because we were having to move the office offline, you know, onto online, sorry, say out of the office. And the whole thing fell apart. And then nursery closed. So my son was at home and my husband was working at home. We were living in a two-bedroom flat with no outdoor space. 
And I needed to be present for the team because we were trying to do prison officer training at a time when every university campus was shut. We needed Public Health England to sign it off. And my daughter had just been born and I really wanted to, and I was trying to recover from a C-section. And that was really hard. And the biggest thing was all of that support network that I set up, my parents, you know, like we had a cleaner, we had, my son was at nursery, we had all of that stuff set up and that all disappeared. And I remember trying to breastfeed my daughter. I also like breastfeeding a whole huge thing. I think about being a female CEO, if you go back to work early, that anyway, a whole different conversation. But I was trying to breastfeed my daughter with my two-year-old son. And we at the time were a no screen family. And I was like, I don't understand logistically how this works. Like, how do I breastfeed my daughter in her first two weeks of life with a two-year-old son with no help. And I was thinking there's single mothers out there who do this with four children. Five, like it's not beyond the wit of man. I was trying to like, I had a piece of paper. I was trying to work out the timings, writing down. I just couldn't work out how you clean the house, feed your kids, recover from a C-section, breastfeed and have a toddler. Any and one on of those things. <laughs> I was on Facebook groups saying, how do I do this? What's your solution? What's the answer? Because that's the other thing I do. I try and I'm part of like every mother's group going on social media and WhatsApp. I was like on all the groups being like, what do I do? How do I deal with this? I just couldn't. And I just felt like such a failure. Mm. And I'm sure many people wouldn't have come through this in a way where you're still standing. You still have your job, you still have your children healthy and fine and yourself healthy and fine. In hindsight, what have you learned in that situation about being a I mean, CEO of children? I don't have a child at the beginning of the pandemic, I think. is that Well, I think, so I think that actually what happened, I started going back into prisons soon afterwards and I was going into women's prisons a lot and we haven't touched on that, but you know, there are pregnant women, there's about 100 women a year giving birth in prison. Many of them, you know, they'll give birth, they'll go to hospital, their child will be taken away from them, and they'll come back to prison without their baby. You know, their milk will be coming in, they'll be, you know, those first days when you've just had a baby, and you're like, your milk's coming and your baby needs to be with you, your whole body is suddenly different. You're like, oh my gosh, I've got these you know, physically, I look completely different. I feel completely different. My boobs are aching. I'm, you know, like all of that. And they go back to prison without their children. Or, you know, if they're lucky, they might go to a mother and baby unit. But what actually, the, what happened with that was I started very soon after, through COVID, I was back in prisons, seeing participants. You know, we were one of the only charities that was able to work in prisons throughout the pandemic because I think we were the only one through the whole pandemic because we had staff in the prison on the front line. And I went into one women's prison that first summer and there was a woman there. She had photos of her daughter all over her wall. And her daughter was the same age as my son, so just turned three. And they'd stopped visits And when they did have visits, the children weren't allowed to touch their mothers. And she said that her two-year-old then had just stood wailing, saying, Mommy, why won't you hug me? Why won't, you know, why won't you hug? And she couldn't hug her. And I just thought, my God, I'm lucky, you know. Like, even in that time, here I am whinging about being in, like, a very nice two-bedroom flat with you know, yes, it was small, yeah, but I had my husband there with me. Yes, I was recovering from a C-section, but, 
you know, actually my first birth was much more traumatic. And lots, you know, it was my second child. I knew, like, you begin to realise that, yeah, like we're so fortunate. And I think, you know, I say we, maybe everyone listening isn't, but, you know, I, I think having a job like mine where you're in prison and you're seeing, and 10% of children in prison are parents, about two thirds of women in prison are mothers separated from their children just to be able to go home and hold your as soon as I met that woman I thought I've just I've got to be close to my children I just started you know I went home and I held them really tight but like yeah I think that's helped a lot actually having a job where where you see how lucky you are to be a mother who's present you know and and it's back to that Sally Coates comment it's like you know I'm not dying I don't have you know some terminal illness it is just a logistical it's often a logistical question to prioritise having such a full life of different things I love. And I speak to people all the time, women all the time, who are thinking about being CEOs, but they don't want to take that next step because they want to have a young family. And I just say always, like, this is the job to do. Like, get into this job before you have the family because then you can leave at 5.15. You know, if my kids are sick, my son has serious you know, he's got asthma. He was in and out hospital a lot as a kid. Like, if he was in hospital, I can cancel my meeting. I don't have to call someone up and say, is it okay if I cancel my meetings? I can just, I can prioritise what I need to prioritise. I can set up a culture where other people have the permission to do that. You know, if people are, are going through, if their kid's in hospital, why would they not take the day off? <laughs> you know, it's like, there's just these kind of non-questions you can then set into the culture of your organisation. And I think that is such a privilege to be in a position where you can set your own culture and make it work for working parents. So that's, yeah, that's absolutely at the heart of the organisation that I've been fortunate enough to build while having my own family. And it works really well for me. (laughs) I'm very pleased you gave that sales pitch for becoming a CEO (laughs) with young children. (laughs) That's exactly, well, as you know, I have a strong agenda and I really hope a lot of the listeners um, who want to go this way um, feel that they take NATO steps. So if someone is listening to you and has a vague inkling that maybe this is the path for them, um, we always ask towards the end of our podcast, what is one or two small, ideally a maximum five minute thing they could do this week? To, to start on the path of becoming a CEO, is there such a thing? And if yes, what is what is it? For me, at the heart of a lot of it is having networks. I think being a CEO can be a really lonely job if you're not deliberate about network building. And I don't mean network building like, you know, in a schmoozy way. I mean, having genuine groups of people who you can go to with challenges and who you trust and building that trust so that once you are a CEO, you can reach out to those people, I think, is absolutely crucial. And I think also just knowing yourself, you know, I know that I'm very deliberate. I'm a real planner. I like to, you know, if I've got everything planned, then I'm, I feel safe with it. And for me, a lot of being, getting, stepping into this role has been about meticulous planning and then reflecting and changing things where needed. So, yeah, I, I think those are, you know, we've spoken a lot about the difficulty switching off and 
self-care. I don't think that's a CEO thing. I think everyone in every job, I think work can be really stressful. You don't have to be a CEO for work to be really stressful. In fact, in my experience, being a CEO in lots of ways is much less stressful because I don't have a boss to deal with in the same way that you do. And you have so much more control over your job. But I think there is something about like self-care just needing to be part of anyone's life. There's a lot of nonsense talked about being a CEO, I think, and, and about being a parent. And and for me, about hugely about being a woman. So, yeah, I think having networks, having people who you really admire. I try and surround myself with, like, incredible people who I, like, want to be like. And then I call them up, people like Sally Coates, people like Rachel D'Souza, the Children's Commissioner, someone else who, you know, I find incredibly inspiring, who I've worked closely with. My ex-bosses in the past, Max Heimendorf, Jonathan Simons, you know, just people who I've learned so much from. And I try and always have those people around so I can learn from them. Mm. And when I heard you speak about your charity, I was incredibly touched. And I would like to give you to invite you to share how we, um, as the listeners, can support. Um, where can we find out more about the charity, about you? And what would you like ideally for the listeners to do if they choose to want to support you? Yes, there's so many things people can do. Um, so, I mean, the biggest thing that people can do is if, so the most influential person in a prisoner's life is often the prison officers. They set the culture. They're the person who prisoners turn to. They're the one who can inspire them. They're the person who who just has a massive influence, negative or positive, on the life of prisoners. And if we want society to be safer and our streets to be safer. When people come out of prison, they move into our communities, they become our neighbours. And frankly, I want prison to be the kind of place where they get opportunities that mean they're the best possible neighbours. So um, join our programme. If you know anyone who is interested, we're a leadership development programme. People join us for, they work as prison officers. It's a two-year programme and it's a leadership development program. So you learn how to lead change from the front line while working as a prison officer, supporting some of the most challenging and vulnerable people in our society. So that's the first thing. Just if you know someone great, get them to look at our program. Or if you're that great person, have a look at our program. But I guess in terms of the kind of wider sector support, um, prisons are a part of our community are holding people as I said almost every single person in prison is going to be released so thinking about you know what's your local prison is there anything you can do to support it and the final thing particularly because this is obviously going to be lots of parents listening to this or people who aspiring parents perhaps is there are many many children affected through having a parent in prison There's no record. There's no central record. We know how many Labradors there are in the country. We don't know how many children have a parent in prison in the country. It was something I saw the other day that was quite shocking. But it's about, it's just under a third of a million children a year who have a parent in prison, 312,000. That's about three times the number of children who have parents getting divorced every year. That's children statistically in every class in every school in the country who have a parent in prison. Um, So anyone who works with children getting educated about prison and how you can support children who have a parent in prison, they won't talk about it. It's very taboo. It's often secret, but that's absolutely huge. I guess finally, we are, um, I think, probably one of the most supportive organisations of parents, uh, although with bloody high expectations. So if you're absolutely awesome, 
but being a parent is a huge part of your identity and you want to work somewhere with like-minded people we have lots of jobs coming up all the time so have a look wonderful thank you so much natasha it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you for inviting me lovely to meet thank you so much for listening today And a special thank you to all of those of you who have connected with me on LinkedIn in the last few weeks. I really, really love hearing from listeners and hearing how you enjoyed the show. So it means a lot. Thank you so much. If you would like to be in touch in real life, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. It is such a fantastic community of working parents supporting each other to find a way to get careers where you can make a big difference in senior roles but also do that unapologetically in a way that works for us and if you want to apply then the deadline is 20th of march you can download the brochure for the program on leadersplus.org podcasting is also quite a male-dominated environment if you look at the top charting podcasts especially outside of the kids and family space very often it's all led by men I can't remember the numbers, but it is very male dominated. Just take a look at the charts. And interestingly enough, more females than males listen to podcasts. So another unequal space. And thank you for supporting this podcast by listening to it. But if you want to help us, I guess, have more influence in the space, then please do help by sharing it with your friends and by leaving a five star review. Thank you so much to all of those of you who've done that already. Have a wonderful week.